As we begin this morning, I'm going to read to you from a document, and I want you to just take a guess at what it might be. Dear Rachel, I love you. I am so blessed to have you in my life. You are the greatest girlfriend in the world, and I miss you more than anything. Okay, I won't subject you to any more of that. Uh, If you guessed that that was an early love letter that I wrote to my then girlfriend, now a wife, then you would be correct. So I just want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that this letter got really famous and everyone started reading it. Not hard to imagine, right? (laughs) And everyone's reading it and publishers catch on and uh, it starts being published in books and somewhere along the line, uh, because people like to quote this letter so much, they start to number the paragraphs and the sentences to make it easier to quote. Like in First Rachel chapter 3, verse 10, it says, I love you with all my heart. And people continue to quote this letter and they continue to read it. But as years and years go by, they forget that there ever was a Rachel. And they forget that there ever was a David. And they forget that there ever was a love between them. Oftentimes, this is what we do when we read the New Testament epistles, the New Testament letters. Letters, by nature, are written in relationship. They are from someone to someone. And so this morning, as we begin our new series on the generosity of God, we're going to look at what it meant to be an Ephesian. Because I think if we understand what it meant to live in and around Ephesus in the first century, we'll be able to apply what this letter means to us today. So I have a few images that I'm going to show you this morning to explain ancient Ephesus. So the first image is just a map. Ephesus is located in what's modern-day western Turkey. Uh, It was at a confluence of trade routes in the Roman Empire. And so the city grew very powerful because of all the trade that came through it from Asia through to Europe. Uh, If you were from Ephesus and it was your hometown, it was the fourth largest city in the world. There's only a few cities that are larger. Uh, Rome was a little bit bigger and um, also Alexandria, Egypt, and a city named uh, uh, Antioch on the Ariantis was a little bigger. But just to give you perspective on what your city had to offer, here's a picture of the library. That's the facade of the public library in downtown Ephesus. It's called the Celsus Library. Now, it boasted 12,000, over 12,000 works. This means that it was the third largest library in the world at the time. And if 12,000 books doesn't sound like very much to you, uh, this is long before the printing press. These books were all handwritten and hand-copied. It was known for its historical works. If you wanted to do primary source research on ancient history, you traveled to Celsus in Ephesus. This gives you an idea of the academic temperature of the city. Next, we have a picture of uh, the theater. The theater was eventually expanded to seat 25,000 people. That's 4,000 seats bigger than Madison Square Gardens. And the stage was three stories tall. Now, if you're thinking, could that many people really go to plays? This is long before TV. They didn't have much else to do. (laughs) And finally, we have uh, a picture of the state Agora. So Ephesus was the capital 
of the Roman province of Asia, which is really modern Turkey. So decisions were made in this state agora by politicians that affected the entire province. So much like the decisions made in Hartford don't just affect Hartford, they affect all of Connecticut, Ephesus was like that. So what am I trying to tell you this morning? Uh, If you were from Ephesus in the first century, you were not from a dirt road, two-goat town. You were from the hub. Think New York, Hong Kong, London in modern-day city terms. So Paul, why is he writing to this city? Why is he writing to this group of people that live there? Well, in 53 AD, Paul came through the city, and he preached there for two years, and people started to believe in Jesus, and the early church was begun in Ephesus, and then Paul left. And about 10 years later, Paul finds out that this church he helped establish is falling apart. It's not going to last. And so he's writing a letter back to the people uh, to remind them of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Essentially, this letter is a refresher course on what it means to be a Christian. And the letter, it's split into two very different halves. There's chapters 1 through 3 that have a very certain feeling, and then there's chapters 4 through 6 that have a totally different feeling. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul addresses all the bad behavior in the church. He says, those of you who are stealing, stop stealing and get a job so that you can be generous and give to others. He says, those of you who are drunk on wine, stop being drunk on wine, but be full of the Holy Spirit. He says, "Uh, those of you who are angry, do not sin in your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, handle today's conflict today, people. But in chapters one through three, Paul doesn't address any behaviors. He doesn't tell the people in Ephesus to do anything. So what does he say? I mean, what does he do in the first half? Well, all he does is remind them, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are. You have been given riches by God. In his generosity, he has brought you into his family. Now, why did this church need to be reminded that God had been generous to them. And why do we need to be reminded that God has been generous to us? Well, it's simple. Because our inheritance is not based in anything in this world. Our inheritance is based in God's generosity. So let's take a look at that truth in the passage. Starting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says this. Verse 11, he says, In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I don't know about you, but I have thought about my inheritance. Uh, I've thought about, you know, what are my parents going to leave behind to us kids? And maybe you've thought about that too. Uh, I know here in Greenwich, an inheritance can possibly be a life-changing thing. And I've seen inheritances uh, change people for the better and for worse. I've seen people get a huge inheritance when they had nothing, and it's allowed them to have new life. But I've also seen people think that they didn't get what they deserved, and they were very angry about it. Well, this passage shows us that our inheritance, it's a sure thing. 
because it's based not in what we do, it's based in what God has done. So uh, I meet this guy, he's a successful developer, he's a successful trader, he's a successful realtor, you know, and we're talking about his career, and I ask him, you know, do you feel like somebody? And he says, yeah, pastor, you know, I'm a pretty important guy. You know, I feel like somebody. But then the market shifts, and he loses everything. He's no longer a successful realtor. He's no longer a successful trader. And I go back to him and I ask him the same question. Do you feel like somebody? And he says, no, pastor. You know, I'm a nobody. Now, is there more to that man's value than a marketplace, than something so fragile as a marketplace? Should his identity be based in something else, something that is more sure than a flimsy market? I mean, what would it look like if his identity was based in something that couldn't be taken away, in something that was a sure thing, in something that God had done for him? Now, maybe you're still sitting there thinking about the inheritance, and uh, you're thinking about a friend of yours who's going to get a ton of money, and you're thinking, I wish I was like that person. Well, the good news of this passage is this. We have been adopted into a family with the greatest inheritance ever. The greatest inheritance ever. And what this verse says right here, let's take a look at that. This adoption into the family with the greatest inheritance ever. Uh, In verse 5, it says this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, Paul is writing to a first century Roman culture. This culture is known for child abandonment. When a baby was born, it was regular practice for a mother to bring the child and sit it at the father's feet. And the father had two options. He could pick up the child and say that he wanted to raise it, or he could turn his back on the child, basically saying that he wants nothing to do with the baby. And he could do this for any reason. If it was a boy and he wanted a girl, if it was a girl and he wanted a boy, if it had some sort of blemish or deformity that he didn't like. Now, what, what, what would happen to the baby? Well, uh, they wouldn't kill the baby In Rome, they had the attitude of, well, we'll let the gods deal with it, right? And so they would expose the baby. They would bring the baby to the marketplace at the middle of the night and leave it, or they would bring the baby to the dump. It's said if you went out the eastern side of, eastern gate of Ephesus, there was a huge city dump. You could hear the cries of hundreds of babies dying in that dump. If it was summertime, they would die of lack of water. They had no water. If it was wintertime, they would die of hypothermia. There was actually a whole business in Rome that was based off of picking over these babies and choosing them to raise them to become slaves or prostitutes. These people would raise them and sell them. There's a book by a doctor written in first century Ephesus, and it's titled, How to Get the Baby with the Best Return on Your Investment, essentially. And he talks about the measurements and the weights of a baby and what to raise so you can sell it for the most money. 
This is the culture that Paul writes to. And right off the bat, he says this, you are adopted by God. You have been adopted into his family. There were followers of Jesus in the church of Ephesus in the first century who had been dumped as babies. They'd been dumped. This was a culture of dumped kids. And Paul says, guess what? The God of the universe picked you out before the foundations of the world to adopt you into his family. Now we, like those babies, have been separated from God. That's what sin does. It exposes us helplessly like these children. And we are like those babies. We are powerless to save ourselves. Well, hear this truth this morning. The God of the universe chose you. He picked you out. He picked you up and he brought you home. He adopted you. You know, that's what happened when you came to believe in Jesus. That was his plan from before the foundations of the world. You see, this is why I wanted to use the, these images of first century Ephesus, because these things may, meant something to these people. And when we see that, we understand what they mean to us. By the way, the early church, the reason it grew so much is because they adopted babies. They went out and they took these babies in. That's why the church grew at such a rapid rate. So, okay, um, how can we be so sure that uh, we've been adopted by God? I mean, how can we know? Well, because he's paid the redemption price. He's paid the redemption price, which takes us to that next image in the text. Let's look at that. In verse 7, it says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, when we read the word redemption today, we think of it as some weighty theological term. But redemption is not a theological word. It's a trade word. All it means is to buy. To redeem something just means you bought it. It's hard for us to think of a contemporary application of this, uh, but in first century Ephesus, this would have made perfect sense. Um, Paul is writing to a slave culture. After you leave this service today, feel free to Google three words. Uh, Ephesus slave trade. There are many sources that say that Ephesus was the center of the entire slave trade in the Roman Empire. You could go to the market and you could buy the latest fashions from Rome. You could buy purple cloth from Thyatira. You could buy spices from the east and you could buy people. You could buy people. And there were slaves in the church in early Ephesus. We know this because Paul writes to them. So I want you to imagine with me, you walk into a courtyard of a home in Ephesus in the first century and you start talking to a guy who's in this church service. And uh, you start talking and you say, you know, well, well, who do you belong to? And he says, well, you know, I belong to Cornelius. And you're like, how did that happen? And he's like, well, as a baby, you know, my parents dumped me, they left me. And uh, this family came and they, they picked me up and they raised me to be a slave. 
you know, from a really early age, as early as I can remember, I was doing work in their home. And then when I turned 13, they brought me to the marketplace and they sold me. And Cornelius came in with a bag of silver and he redeemed me. He redeemed me. And you're like, what do you mean he redeemed you? Yeah, he bought me. He bought me. He paid for me. Now, if this guy has had a life-on-life encounter with the risen Christ, then his primary value is not as one of a slave to Cornelius because someone else paid for him. Jesus bought him. Paul says very clearly, in him we have redemption through his blood. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism explains this. Uh, It says this, My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who through his blood paid the price for my sin. Paul is saying, okay, there was an adoption program. And what was the price of that adoption program? Well, it wasn't money. The price was Jesus hanging on the cross. You see, as Jesus died on the cross, he was paying the price to bring our souls to God. He paid for us. He bought us. You see, God doesn't need to punish us for our wrongs because he punished someone else for them already on the cross. Did you know that's what happened for you and me on the cross? And Paul is writing to this slave culture and he's saying your primary identity is not as a slave or a master, but you have been bought by the blood of Christ. Later in the book, Paul, he appeals to both slaves and masters. And I love what he says. He says, you're both owned by somebody else. You're both owned. No one is better than anyone in the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate leveler. Everyone is equal. My friends, just know that when it came to your soul coming to God, someone else paid the tab. Somebody else paid for you. So, okay, pastor, wait a minute. You're saying that God owns me? Isn't it bad to own somebody? Isn't that like slavery? Well, yes, it's bad if a human owns another human because there's no way a human master can have the best interest Of another human in mind. But what if we have an owner who always has our best interest in mind? What if we have an owner who sacrifices everything for us? So how do we know? I mean, uh, my father left me as a baby. How do I know that this adopted father is good? I mean, I have abandonment issues. How can I trust that God is really going to hold true on this adoption process? Well, we know that he's trustworthy because he gave us a guarantee. He gave us a guarantee, and that's the seal of his Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at that last image in verse 13. Uh, Paul continues in verse 13. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, a seal in the ancient world, it's a mark of ownership. And in this world, uh, or in this word, the seal or the guarantee uh, that's used here, it's actually marriage language in the Greek. 
Um, it's actually the same word used for engagement ring. So how can we trust that God is good? Because he put a ring on it, right? He committed to it. That's his guarantee to us. Rachel and I uh, had a friend who has been dating this, have, have a friend who's been dating this guy for a long time. And we like this guy, but we've always been kind of wary of him, right? He always says he's going to marry this girl, but he never does anything, right? It's been like seven years of him saying, you know, uh, we're going to get engaged. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, really? Is it going to happen? Come on. I don't see a ring. Finally, last week, he put a ring on it, right? He put the guarantee there. And now immediately, you know, our, our preconceived notions, our lack of trust in this guy is gone because that guarantee is there. Now, the hard part of our marriage with Christ is that our marriage with Christ is not fully brought to fruition until we're in heaven with him. That's when we're fully in his presence. But he gives us something in the here and now to guarantee that, an engagement ring. And it's the Holy Spirit. When you come to believe in Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. As you sit in that pew this morning, hear the whisper of the Spirit. He says, you're mine. You're mine. You belong to me. You've just made your biggest uh, bonus of the year or your biggest promotion and you go out to celebrate with your family and you're so excited and joyful. Hear the voice of the Spirit. He whispers over you, you're mine. You're mine. You belong to me. When you don't know how you're going to pay the bills and God comes through in the pinch for you and at the last moment you're able to pay, hear the voice of the Spirit. He says, you're mine. You belong to me. When you're at that funeral of that friend or that family member who you were not ready to lose and you are sitting there in your grief and in your sadness, hear the voice of the Spirit. He says, you're mine. You belong to me. This doesn't make grieving go away, but it allows us to grieve with a hope for the future. You're in the midst of a marriage crisis and your spouse is threatening to leave you and you feel abandoned and rejected by everyone in your life. Hear the voice of the Spirit. He says, you're mine. You belong to me. You're mine. God, in his generosity, has given us an inheritance. He has adopted us into a family. He has paid the price for our adoption, and he's sealed it with his guarantee. That is who you are at core. That is your inheritance, not your house, not your wealth, not your title, not your job not your beauty, not your kids. You see, when we understand where we are and who we are at core, it's freedom. It frees us up to live differently. It frees us to view our finances differently. It frees us to love those around us differently. It frees us to serve differently. It frees us to parent differently. So, okay, okay, what 
is the practical application for today, right? I got to go to work tomorrow, pastor. How does this affect that? Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it's the punchline of this book. It's the hinge of the book. It's Paul's application to the people. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are being invited to copy the generosity of God. God has given us everything. And I don't know about you, but I want to be like him. Because in love, he's given us an inheritance. He's adopted us as children. He's paid for our adoption through our redemption. And he's sealed that entire thing with the guarantee of his Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God.